Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey friends, welcome back. Today I am introducing Dr. Lisa Lowry, who is a native of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and attended Michigan State University, receiving her Bachelor of Science degree in microbiology. Dr. Lowry then went on to receive her medical degree from the University of Michigan, and after medical school, completed her residency in medicine and pediatrics at Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids. Her desire to work with young people led her to complete a subspecialty research fellowship in adolescent medicine at the John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. While there at the John Hopkins University, she then obtained a Master's of Public Health in the Department of Population and Family Health Sciences with a Certificate of Concentration in Maternal and Child Health. Currently, Dr. Lowry is an Adolescent Medicine Specialist at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids. Dr. Lowry also serves as the Adolescent Medicine Section Chief and Associate Program Director for the Combined Internal Medicine Pediatrics Residency Program of the Michigan State University Grand Rapids campus. She is an Associate Professor at MSU in the Department of Pediatrics and Human Development. And as of April 2020, she started at Michigan State University as the Assistant Dean for Diversity and Cultural Initiatives at the College of Human Medicine. She is the current president of the West Michigan Medical Society National Medical Association and serves on the Grand Rapids Urban League Board of Directors. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lisa Lowry. Hey, Lisa, how are you? I'm well. How are you doing today? I am good, and I am so grateful that you are giving me some time today. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Well, as we were talking about beforehand, I heard you give a lecture and it was just so good. And I thought, I have to talk to this woman because we would be friends, I think. (laughs) Well, thank you. I mean, that's kind of the funny thing about the world of adolescent medicine. You don't know who's doing it until you start doing talks or doing presentations or you kind of bump into people. So, yes. So I'm happy to meet you. <laughs> and well, let's just jump right in. Um, you and I had a chance to kind of get to know each other and talk a little bit. And I was so struck by the number of times that you used the word mentor in your journey. So why don't you share a little bit about how you came into adolescent medicine? Yes. Yeah, so adolescent medicine, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician. I went to undergrad, went to medical school and was set on being a pediatrician. And my, if you asked me when I was growing up, I said, I want to be a pediatrician so I can take care of kids and give back to my community. That's, um, that was kind of my thought. And uh, when I went to medical school, I did internal medicine and kind of fell in love with internal medicine. And 
I knew I liked it because when I got off the rotation, you know, you're talking to other medical students. I, I was like, wow, you know, internal medicine, we do this and that. And I had not yet done peds. So I did my peds rotation and of course loved it. And I stumbled across this group of docs called med peds docs. I had never heard of it. And um, they talked to me and they were like, yeah, you know, you can do internal medicine and pediatrics. So I um, ended up doing med peds. And but in my personal life, I had always thinking back now, I didn't think about this then, but I had always been like the chaperone um, when we took kids down to visit like HBCUs, um, historically black colleges and universities. Um, I had done things where I was a camp counselor. And so and it's funny because I'm an only child. So the fact that I kind of always kind of interacted with kids and teenagers and young adults. So the true story is I um, did my MedPeds residency. Actually, I was back in Grand Rapids doing my combined internal MedPeds residency. And my classmate and I, true story, um, her name was Wendy. I'm Lisa. And people used to confuse us all the time. Um, and Wendy would go, I'm taller. Now, the funny point is Wendy was blonde and blue eyed. And being an African-American woman, it was actually quite funny when she would respond like that. But Wendy was my my friend in residency. And we were on call in the MICU. And my personal life had changed. And she looks at me and she goes, so you're going to do your adolescent fellowship now? And I'm like, what? And we were second year MedPeds residents. And I go, whatever. I said, we, that's another two to three years on the top of two we have to do. And so she said, why not? You're good at it and you're passionate about it. And so then I talked to, um, and when you talk about mentors, this is, I think, the quintessential mentor, Dr. Eugene Schatz. And I talk, I speak fondly of him. He is not deceased. He retired about five years ago, moved up to Marquette to be with his family. But, um, and I've had many mentors in my life. And so, but I guess the one that most sticks out when I talk about my career to adolescent medicine is Dr. Eugene Schatz. And, um, I met with him and uh, he said, so you think about doing an adolescent fellowship? And I told him yes. And um, he literally he looked at a group of uh, programs and said, OK, these are the ones I think you should apply to. So then I applied to I looked at the list and whittled down the list. And those are the those I applied to. And then I did my adolescent medicine fellowship at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore um, and then met great people there from Dr. Jonathan Ellen and Dr. Adger, Hoover Adger and Maria Trent, who I still stay in contact with. They, I think when you look back at a mentor sometimes and we think of that traditional, I sit there and I talk to them, but also I've learned in life, those mentors are just ones that kind of, they guide you and provide examples of what to do. And I would say that group of people and Dr. Shad, they were people who you look back and like, they, those are mentors. And there are people, I think, when I think of a mentor, I can call on. And I still have mentors now. I think when, when I talk to medical students and residents and they go, will you be my mentor? Or how did you get to where you are? And I said, well, I would love to say I had this grand plan of this is how Dr. Lowry was going to do what she does. But, and I'm very honest, this is how I got to do what I want to do. And then some of them say, well, I want to be like you. And I always respond. I said, no, I want you to be better. <laughs> and, that, and I said, and I said, so, because I walk on the shoulders of here in Grand Rapids, you know, Dr. Mathis and Dr. 
um, Ligon and Dr. Bradley and Dr. Logan. And these are African-American doctors who I know I pay, they paved the way. So I hopefully that I can be just being in that spot and in that present. And when I think of mentors, the other thing I think is sometimes people think of a mentor. Your mentor does not have to look like you. Or, you know, Dr. Schatz, gentleman, he's um, a Jewish man. He's probably, he's old enough to be my father. So I still call him Dr. Schatz. Even we were partners for like 12 years almost. I still called him Dr. Schatz. And he was like, <laughs> okay, Dr. Law. I said, look, I can't call you Dr. Gene. <laughs> But, you know, um, and I think it's really important. And and even now I have mentors that are younger than me. I have my friends. I have kind of have my squad that I go to um, for people that I can just, you know, when you have one of those days, you can just call or text the ones that kind of can talk you off a ledge, the ones who will uh, hold you accountable and be like, hey, maybe you shouldn't have sent that email that sounded like that. <laughs> You know, or the ones who say, did you read this email before? You need to slow down and uh, and type and type better. And then I, I will I will be remiss. Um, I've had the fortune of come across another person in my life. And I, I apologize for naming names, but sometimes I think you just have to name names. Um, the other person I want to uh, give a shout out to is Dr. Wanda Lipscomb. Uh, she's a dean at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. And Dr. Lipscomb, even though I didn't go to Michigan State as a medical student, when I came back here as faculty, uh, now 16 years ago, and started interacting with the medical students and Student National Medical Association, they would be like, do you you know Dr. Lipscomb? And I'm, no. So I had heard about her maybe one year or so before I actually had the pleasure of meeting her. And um, boy talk about a a force. And so now I have the pleasure of working with her more directly because in April of this year, I took on a role as assistant dean for diversity and cultural initiatives with the College of Human Medicine. And so work um, right directly with her. I call her my upline because I do report to her. And she te- she says, stop calling me that. You know, we work together. But um, she's just a, a force to be reckoned with. And so um, and she does, I fangirl her a lot. And, you, but when you, but, and I do that because when you look at people, I feel I'm yet still young enough, even though when I'm sitting in the room, I'm still, I'm, I'm getting one to be one of the old heads in the room, but I look at people and go, I like, I like the way she does that. And even with some of my, my young, my young colleagues, I, I'm so honored to be in their presence and, um, like Dr. Smith King and Dr. Talanda Bragg, and they're just young powerhouses that I'm, and they call me big sis, or some of the residents call me auntie. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think when, when we talk about mentorship, it, it's just kind of, it can be that formal, I'm going to sit and meet with you and talk to you. But I also think it's just that, you know, some I'm going to be there for you. Well, for one thing, I would think it would be a blast to work with you. I bet well, you, that you those young residents, because you're fun. And well, um, you. I mean, you just have that spirit that is fun. And, um, you know, I, I think you're right. Those times that people influence you, it's often on the cuff, you know, not um, not formal. I mean, I think of sitting up late at night one time with one of my attendings in the NICU with Dr. John Hartline. And, you know, just 
imparting all this wisdom, you know, for whatever, you know, the long time that he'd been in practice. And, you know, he stayed up with me till two o'clock in the morning, just chatting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, you felt like, uh, you know, not necessarily that I was an equal in terms of experience, but, you know, a peer and that I had things to offer. And um, yeah, so yeah, that whole teaching thing is is a cool experience. And I love that you really pay it forward for sure. And I certainly hope that you share this podcast with your friends and mentors and everybody you named, because I'm sure that they would love to hear how important they were in your life. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Definitely. Well, and I think talking about adolescence, because I, you know, been in practice for 32 years. And when I first joined my practice, I was the only woman. So by some, I don't know how it happened. I was the one that all the teen girls saw because my partners were less comfortable, you know, talking about periods and things like that. So I became the sort of pediatric gynecologist, even though that wasn't my training. And um, I, I love adolescents and, you know, college students. I mean, I love the, all the ages. They're, they're, I mean, they're, they're lots of fun. But there is something about teenagers, and um, you you talked a little bit about part of why you chose what you chose because you could make a different kind of impact. Mm-hmm. Well, I I love working with teenagers and adolescents and young adults, and I and so that was a big part of when I was looking at my roles. I still love seeing patients, and even though I'm heavy um, administratively, I still see patients half time. And as much as I, you know, they make you want to like bang your head against the wall. I think they will talk to you. I think um, it's they need that consistency in their lives. Um, and I try to say, you know, it's 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 no judgment zone. You know, you can be honest with me. I'm going to be honest with you. You can tell me what you don't like. I'm going to tell you how you need to be different and what we need to work together on, you know, and that's one of the things I really, really try to to have in our relationship. And, I, you know, I say you can be honest with me. You know, if you're smoking weed every day and you doing this or whatever, just be honest with me. If you don't like the medicine I give you because you just don't want to take it, just be honest with me because, I, and I'm very honest with them. I said, you were just wasting, we're just wasting each other's time if you, you come in here and not be honest with me. And so, um, and trying to be consistent with them. I think when people think about pediatrics, they don't think about teenagers and, and young adults. And I or think, sometimes they do with dread. Yes. Like, and people, people like, think I'm crazy. I'm not a teenager. <laughs> well, no, but the opposite is a teenager can tell you what's going on. Yep. I'm like that little baby who could tell you the teenager can actually say my left ear hurts. <laughs> right, know? right. Well, so, and I think those teenagers are hungry for adults that will listen to them and not rush to judgment. Although we oftentimes you want to be saying like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? That was dumb. But if you can do it in a way that they will listen and you respect them. Yes. There's, there's opportunity to make impact for sure. Yeah. And I'm, I've been doing this now a little long enough that I have them that, you know, they've graduated, they've left the nest. Um, I'm getting, one of them just sent me through our, you know, our EMR, uh, a, a Christmas wish. And some of them have moved on. I never forget years, probably like three or four years ago now. 
And I do remember this patient. She was difficult, not in a bad sense. Um, she had some mental health issues, um, but she reached out to me on Facebook and like instant messaging. And she, you know, and just told me, she says, I don't know if you remember me. And she's, but just thank, not just me, but my staff. And I think that's really important that we have that supportive environment. And she had gone on and got married, working in health fields and had kids. And it was just, I think I printed out that um, message because it just, it was like, this is why we do what we do. You know, and I had another patient who, you know, was um, in foster care and graduated from that. And short version, she invited me and she hosted a table at a fundraiser event. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm just sitting there proud of her. And then she goes, this is my doctor. And I'm like, stop telling people that make me feel old. But I mean, <laughs> you know, but you see that. And I think, and again, you see that in little kids and, and, and why we do. And I still love seeing the babies. Sometimes I use staff in the peds clinic, but there's something about that, that, that consistency. And, and like you said, you can tell them what you do or don't like. And some of my ones who've been in, when I have learners on the rotation, they'll tell the learner, tell Dr. Larry, don't come in here being mad, all mad at me and telling me blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, you know, and I'll be like, so I walk in the room. Oh, so you giving me instructions and, you know, but that that's the kind of relationship. And now some, I see them in the halls and they've gone on and had babies and then it makes, and then you're like, then they're like, when my baby is 12, because in our practice, we see 12 to 22, we're going to come see you. And so, I mean, that's, those are the fun things in life. And, um, but yeah, it, it, it is challenging. But I think if you set up that environment where it's, it's that safe space where, and I tell them, I don't need perfection. None of us is perfect, you know? Right. Well, and I think one of the things I would tell residents and early career physicians or really any physician is if a kid invites you to their graduation party, go if you can. It is it is so lovely because they they cannot believe that you came. So it's very gratifying to know that you've made that kind of impact. And it doesn't seem like a big thing, but it matters a lot to your families. Oh yeah. Um, we send out, we've started, well, several years ago, we did like an open house um, and we had the people who graduated come in and then we did a couple years and did, didn't get a huge response, but every year we have a list of graduates and we send out, you know, graduation cards and the, the team signs oh. them and people will come back. Thank you for that graduation card. And, Absolutely. That's lovely. Yeah. And, and I think that's good. And I think a lot of the, um, you know, I'm from, I'm back home and I'm in the community and some people go like, well, you know, Dr. Laurie, you know, that balance and that distance, I said, I will say, I don't have, I go to church with people. I mean, you've been doing this a long time in practice. You're in the community. I say, I have some of my patients who actually I grew up with their parents and they call me auntie, you know, and I said, and that's kind of a blessing when you see them. But I'm also I'm in the room with them and I say, OK, I'm auntie outside that door. But here I'm Dr. Larry. And what you say, I may know your mom for 30 years, but, you know, we still have that confidentiality. But it does, it's, a, it's actually quite humbling. I've, I've found that as I've gotten older where, you you know, you, you had a, uh, uh, some family members, you know, that are, they're like my third niece and nephew. They're coming to see me or and I said, but no one disrespects that. I said they don't disrespect that boundary. I mean, no family members texting me. Hey, what do I do about this? You know, and 
I said, it's okay. You know, the, you don't have to, I don't think it's as big of as a worry as sometimes people think. Um, and I think being involved in the community, definitely something I'm, I'm passionate about um, and try, hopefully kind of model that. But, but I, I do think it's, it's great. Like you said, going to that graduate, even if you don't go, you know, send a little, you can send a little something, you know, or, you know, just saying, you know, congratulations. That's a big, that's a big part. You are a part of their lives. Well, and I've said this many times on this podcast is, you know, with our title comes great responsibility and great power. Um, being a physician, it is an interesting key because it allows you this intimacy with people that mm-hmm. most other professionals do not have. And it, it can be very humbling. I think the most probably humbling was when I was in at the gym in the locker room with my towel up, you know, <laughs> after I'd hopped out of the shower and there was a little girl who was probably, I don't know, six or seven. Hey, Dr. <laughs> at that point, I'm like, okay, we've just, <laughs> We're there's no that. boundaries here, you know, but they, you know, that happens. So, and, you know, I, I, I had been in this long enough too, that, you know, so many people are bringing their babies back mm-hmm. and, and one of my partners, I love that she used to be one of my patients as a teenager and she's an amazing physician. She's really something, but that was really, um, humbling but also that also marks time like oh my god I really am getting old <laughs> but, yes, I, I, I laugh as some of my teenagers especially this time of year you know with a lot of uh patients patients being home because of the uh pandemic a lot of them are coming in and I'm like you're a junior in college and I looked at one the other day and her, her mom was in the room and I said isn't amazing mom our kids get older but we don't we don't get a day older and she's like absolutely isn't- yeah this gray hair that you see no that's just uh it's wisdom that's what that my stylist, my well, stylist says he's gonna cover my wisdom that's what he calls <laughs> my gray hair <laughs> well let's um talk a little bit about I think a tough conversation and, you know, on commercials, you'll see this hard conversation you have to have about drugs with kids. To me, that's not that hard. It's like, don't do them. You know, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not rocket science. They're not great for you, but sex is hard to talk about because we're all sexual beings and kids are going to have sex at some point in their lives. And it's a hard conversation, you know, for parents. I mean, first of all, I sometimes said to kids, you don't want to know about your parents' sexual life, right? And they look at you like, oh my God, don't even say that. But, you know, your parents, to have that conversation, they want to put blinders on and not talk about it. So having somebody like you that a kid can talk about and you can open the subject, there's enough distance um, and your, your role is different. So talk a little bit about how you talk with kids about sexuality and normalizing it. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, when we're talking to people, the younger teens, you know, obviously we're talking about good touch, bad touch. We're talking about, you know, going through puberty and your pubertal changes. And, you know, I'll usually, I'll just say, you know, are you having sex? Are any of your friends having sex? What have you heard about sex? Um, and then, you know, I really ask very quickly, you know, are you attracted to men, women, or both? Um, and just make it make it a normal part. I try to make it as normal in my conversation as when I'm reviewing their meds. 
um, as I'm talking about school. When I'm teaching my learners, I call them the drugs, drug, sex, rock and roll and hip hop questions. You know, having that conversation. And then the biggest thing is, I think, you know, having that conversation with parents outside, with the parents outside the room. But, you know, just normalizing it and then really saying if and when you, you start to become sexually active, you know, make sure you're using a condom. Let's talk about, you know, birth control options. I think the other thing is just sexuality and having that conversation, you know, because we so much talk about sexuality and those binary norms. Our, our gender identity and our sexuality can be very fluid. And so really having that conversation and, and when people say, you know, I'm a virgin, I ask, what does that mean to you? Because virginity can be, I'm just having, you know, penile vaginal sex, but I'm not having oral sex. So I really talk to them about, you know, being safe. And if you're going to have sex, you know, and I, and I, t- I tease them. I said, you know, if your parents probably, like you said, don't want to know, you don't want to know about their sexuality and they have concerns about you becoming sexually active. But, you know, your parents will probably wish you're never going to be sexually active. But we are sexual beings. That's how we're wired, like you said. So I'm here to say, if you're going to be sexually active in no matter what form of sexual, sexual activity, I'm here to make so that you're safe. Um, make sure, you know, and talk about also like the relationships. Are you, are you, are you enjoying, if you're having sex, are you enjoying sex? Are you, you know, and having that conversation, you know, making sure you're not only using protection, do you need to use lubrication? And then again, always stress hormonal contraception, um, for, so protect against pregnancy. Um, and so just I try to normalize those conversations so it's not like, okay, now we're going to sit and talk about sex. Nope. I've asked you, I asked you about school. I asked you how your grades were. I asked you, you know, are you smoking weed? Are you smoking? Are you vaping? Are you this? And are you sexually active? And just, and then I go, you know, do you, are you having any problems with sleep? Are you having any problems? Just part of the, just part of the routine conversation. But, but I think the other thing is we have to be allowing making sure our environments and our practices are affirming environments as well. So, so that people are comfortable expressing their sexuality and their gender identity. And I think um, if you don't have those open affirming environments, um, there's a lot of times uh, patients will, will, will hide a lot of themselves from you. Well, and I think if you make the assumptions that, um, that they are, you know, heterosexual, um, Mm -hmm. you you miss it. And I, you know, it's oftentimes you judge people by how they look Mm -hmm. and you think, oh, this family would, they would never do drugs. And then, you know, they reveal to you that they have, and you kind of like, oh, I shouldn't judge. I would sometimes ask, do you have a boyfriend, girlfriend, or anybody special? That was kind of how I asked that question. And I think there's different ways to, you know, I don't know if that's effective or not. But at least opening the door and just saying, you know, it's okay to talk about that. I love your line about, are you enjoying sex? I cannot imagine a parent, and certainly as a parent, asking my kid that. But, you know, you don't want it to be painful or scary. Or if they are in a relationship that isn't safe and doesn't feel good and they're scared, you know, maybe they wouldn't tell anybody unless you asked. And um, I think you and I had caught, had a conversation previously about intimate partner violence. 
And that, you know, a lot of teenagers get themselves in those situations. And I had a girl one time, man, I worked with her for a long time because she was stuck. And, uh, you know, I had to kind of respect that she wasn't ready to get out. I mean, it wasn't abusive, but it was a weird relationship. It didn't make Mm -hmm. her feel good. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what are your thoughts about that? Well, and I think now it's, it may not be the, when we think about intimate partner violence, we think about the hitting, the physical um, aspect, but a lot of times and what you described is also a manipulative controlling environment. And, you know, do you feel safe in your relationship? Um, it's not uncommon for uh, me to come across people that are, are in relationships of, I'll use the word convenience or necessity. You know, I'm in this relationship. It's not a good relationship, but it provides me um, a place to stay. It provides me, you know, some monetary gain or this person provides my clothes or things, uh, things like that. Um, And the other thing. So when we think about, you know, it might not be that I'm getting hit or I'm getting, you know, um, emotionally abused, but I'm, I have this person that has this kind of control over my life and they're very manipulative. So I'd usually ask, you know, do you feel safe? Do you feel comfortable in in your, in your relationship? Um, I think the biggest thing is also asking about where people live and where they're spending their time, you know, because if, you know, I'm, you know, living with my, I'm 19, but, or even, and you say, okay, you're an adult, but if I'm living with my 42 year old, you know, partner, that to me raises a red flag. Um, and so having those conversations and one of the things for people to listen to, these are not easy, you know, 15 minute conversations. And, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of the, the RVU financial demands. And so I think a lot of times, that's when uh, providers are uncomfortable. They're like, well, I don't want to ask because then, you know, I'm going to be behind in my schedule, but we have to allow those opportunities um, to have those, those conversations. Um, And again, offering guidance in a non-judgmental way saying, okay, I understand you're in this environment. Is there, how can I help you to get out? Do you feel safe? Why are you in that environment? If, if I don't have a place to live because my mom kicked me out, well, being in this relationship is better than being homeless. And so we also have to, you know, provide those those safe spaces, those opportunities and, and, and those conversations with our patients to know, OK, I can say get out the relationship, but where then where, where are they going to live? And I think the other thing we have to be mindful of when we think a lot of times of intimate partner violence we think of traditionally, you know, male on female, you know, it's one, the man abuse, but I've had situations where either it's been abusive relationship and same sex relationships, or it's been the, the female partner abusing the male partner. Um, and so, um, and that can be even a little harder for the, 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 the male partner to, to bring up because, you know, he, he doesn't want to say, okay, well, you know, my partner's beating on me. So um, I think it's just not, again, if it's, you know, someone's being abused and that unsafe, there's definitely ways we can intervene. But I think in your case, very similarly, when it's kind of those manipulative, emotional things, those are even harder to deal with. Well, and I think particularly some of our kids that may have 
some intellectual disability or some of our autistic kids that may not get the nuance of relationships, that can be really tricky. I know we've had some presentations on sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I've really had anybody in that situation that I knew about. Now, could there have been? I'm sure. And I know in West Michigan, I think in the Grand Rapids area, that's a pretty significant thing that's occurring. And, you know, so I guess you just have to be aware and hope that somebody would feel safe to be able to tell you some of those things, because those those are tough admissions. Those are very hard. Um, And then you have to develop the space where they've been, they're comfortable. And I, you know, I've had a couple instances where I was concerned about um, particularly sex trafficking. And it, in those cases, fortunately, it wasn't, they weren't being trafficked. But I really kind of said, I'm asking you these questions because I'm really concerned about your safety. Um, I have had, because in our practice, we deal with um a significant refugee and undocumented minor population. Unfortunately, we've had had uh, several cases where um, men and women have been trafficked, especially when they, you know, they're um, thinking they're paying uh, the person for safe passage and then they get um, in a in a situation where they've been sex trafficked. So, yeah. And again, those aren't honestly and I'm, I'm not that great to say, you know, that it happens in the first 15 minutes and this person goes, oh, by the way, I've been sex trafficked. It really is developing those those relationships and that and that safe space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are those are really tough. And it's kind of like uh, the suicide question, too. You mm-hmm. have, you know, um, I think you're right. Sometimes we don't want to ask that question because what am I supposed to do with that? Or. I just don't have time, but the reality, you know, particularly with suicide, you know, it's the second leading cause of death in our teenagers. So if we're going to go into this business to, you know, save lives and improve lives, I mean, what a better place to impact it when you are in a huge position to do that. Yes. Yes. Um, And I think we, I ask all my patients, you know, are you, do you feel sad down like you want to hurt yourself? You know, in some version of question, usually I ask about sleep. Um, In our office, we screen everybody with um, a PHU-9 and actually a GAD in our practice um, because we have such a high risk population. But even with that, you know, I look at the screener, but then also ask the patient and, I we see a lot of behavioral health. We see a lot of mood disorders in our practice. I have the f- great fortune of always have a, a full time social worker on staff. Um, I could not do or we could not do in our practice what we do without our social worker. But I think and I think slowly but surely our, our institution is really realizing the, the need for behavioral health in every single practice. Um, and so I've been fortunate to be in multiple practices where I've had social workers, but I know several primary care offices that, you know, don't have that luxury. We're getting there, but, you know, that that's the thing you providers say, you want me to ask these questions, but then I, I have no one, I can't, I don't, I don't have the resources or anywhere to either refer them to, or I don't have that behavioral health specialist, that social worker in my office that can help me navigate it. Um, and so we really have to be, we have to be aware of that. But still, if you, you don't have that resource, be 
have to ask those questions. Yeah, I, for us, having social work or behavioral health person has been a game changer. And I would say to any pediatrician out there or any physician is that figure out how to have some relationship with a mental health professional, ideally in your practice, because there's nothing like saying to a kid, gosh, it really sounds like you're having a hard time. I have part of my team. I'd like them to come and help us figure out a plan for you. Would that be okay? And then to pull in my social worker and have them do that work for me, because sometimes they have better skills than I do, and they may have the time. And so that return on investment, you know, I may have to pay for that, but gosh, it is worth every cent. And it's a relief to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it helps my mental health to know that I'm not going it alone. Um, I tried doing a go it alone. And I literally remember sitting on the floor sobbing after a kid told me that, you know, he'd been locked in a cage. I mean, I just couldn't take that kind of level of awfulness without having, and it was after that, that I'm like, I got to figure out how to have a a mental health person. And I actually reached out to our, um, our our university to say, is there anybody that could help me? Um, Somebody said, have you, you know, talk to somebody in the clinical psychology department. There was a graduate student and she needed the hours and I needed the help. It changed my life oh, having definitely. somebody because now I I could unload. I mean, my husband doesn't want to hear that and you can't disclose that kind of information anyway. So what do you do with all that stuff? So to have behavioral health, I mean, it's good for your own health. And of course, the patient benefits tremendously. And I totally agree. And for my social workers, I they're directly embedded. Um, and one of the things that I love to do is I'll send the resident or the medical student in with the social worker. And I'm like, you're going to see how they ask questions differently than we ask questions. And then there, it's part of the team. And so um, we've even developed a, you know, a relationship depending on why the patients come in. Sometimes the social worker goes in first and I'll say the resident and they, and um, our social workers do it so seamlessly. Um, our social worker, Sarah Lickison, and our former social worker, Heather Hardiman, because, and that's a, a way of education, because I tell the learners, you're never going to get chance to see this, <laughs> you know, so why don't you, you have this mental health expert do it? Well, and I've had, when we started this program with some clinical doctoral students, um, you know, I was able to, they would come in the room with me and then I could say, hey, what do you think? And then they would do this intervention. So after I saw it for a while, I learned to use that. In fact, I was talking, her name's Colleen Cullinan. She's at Nemours now. And um, I'm going to have her as a guest just talking about what are some strategies that I can do in five minutes or less that will help somebody manage their anxiety. You know, some simple things because not everybody is going to go to a therapist, even if I think it's a good idea. And maybe not everybody needs that level. So just be able to have some tools in your pocket. I mean, we can just learn from these other colleagues. And this team thing is just such a relief to have other expertise. You know, it's like having our nurse care managers with our complex kids to have them coordinate stuff. That's a load off. And it's stuff we were never trained to do. 
I mean, you know, we, you know, we went on our psychiatry rotations and, you know, we had our lectures, but I think it's, it's a different skill set. And I agree. I've learned so many tricks and tips from our social workers that I use, but I, I agree. It is, it has been, it is a, a godsend for me. I mean, I would not function. We could not function without our social right. work and our practice. Well, and, and it's not just any age because, you know, if you have, if you're seeing you know, infants, those moms need support. Um, And toddlers are tough. And elementary school age, there's lots of anxiety. And, and, you know, so every age has its own issues. And we cannot separate out the emotional piece from the physical piece, because it's all the same thing. And I think for so long, we've looked at it as these two separate entities. So, I mean, honestly, it was a driving force for doing this podcast is that how do you pull in this stuff and think about this emotional wellness as part of what you do just regularly. It's not a, oh, I do mental health and I do mm. medical health. It's all the same. And even if you're just doing the physical and you think you're not doing the mental, if you're not doing the mental health part, you, you're missing the boat. You know, that chest pain that you're working up, you know, maybe it's anxiety. And now you've, mm. you've, you're pursuing the wrong diagnosis. Yep. Very well said. They're not separate. And I tell people, I said, parents and the family thrives if it's a good, healthy mental, mental environment. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's true. All of us want to feel like we are seen as a whole person, that somebody is um, appreciating how I am in the world and my own you know, emotional well-being is not that different. I mean, certainly, I mean, I've struggled with it, struggled with anxiety my probably my whole life. And sometimes it is a physical feeling like I just do not feel good. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for people that don't experience that. And you talked about sort of sharing with people. I mean, I've told kids before, yeah, like, I, I know what you're talking about. It feels awful, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to go into a lot of personal stuff, but you know, if I was a diabetic, I would say, yeah, diabetes sucks. Yeah. And, and I, I know what you're talking about, but having that realization that mental and emotional stuff, it's all the same thing. Yeah. And, and, and we, and so far, I think now medicine, our traditional medicine has come to realize that, you know, and, but the, what we trained in really didn't necessarily you know, put it together, but we have to be able to allow people to be their whole selves. And, and that's why we have to ask, you know, not just how are you sleeping, but why aren't, aren't you sleeping? And, you know, why aren't you doing well in school? Because it's one thing to tell the kid you need to do better in school or do this, but if the kid is anxious and depressed, they're not going to do better in school, right? you know? Well, and so, or, and for us, we have to, take better care of ourselves. You know, a social worker told me a while ago, Lisa, you can't give if your cup is empty. And so, you know, we have to learn how to take better care of ourselves emotionally. Um, You know, and you've probably read article after article about physician burnout and, you know, those things like that. And so we, we, we have to do better about that. When I was talking to a social worker who is an educator now. And, you know, one of the things she said was, you know, if you have a kid that doesn't know where they're going to sleep tonight, they're not going to be doing their homework. So yeah. if you don't know that stuff, 
you may be spinning your wheels, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that piece about taking care of ourselves, it's hard when you have to go home and chart for two hours, three hours. Um, you know, you may have a family, you know, there's just a lot of things and to draw those boundaries. I remember when I was young and starting my family and saying to my partners, I need to work part-time. And that was the first time because I was the only woman in the group. That was the first time anybody did that. And they made space for me to do that for which I am grateful. And it was a perfect match for me, but to be able to ask for that and, uh, you know, suicide rates, I think physicians have one of the highest professional suicide rates. So, you know, there's a lot of struggle and if we don't feel like it's okay to share that too. And, you know, so having a social worker might be a good place to say, Hey, I need some help. Where, where can I go? Yes, that is true. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. Your patients are clearly so lucky to have you and your colleagues. I, like I said, you must be a blast to work with. And those thank kids you. are probably delighted to get to go see Dr. Lowry today. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Well, it's, to, it's clear that you do. I, I have to, you know, my, I was laughing. My, my, I think a lot of my humor and stuff comes from my family. Um, my father, um, I lost my mother. She died when I was in high school, but my dad, uh, Bobby Lowry is truly, uh, he, I was, I said as a mentor, he, you know, I guess as a father, he's a great mentor too, but he's, he's, he's hilarious. Um, and so I think a lot of my humor, people say, you're funny. I was like, you need to, you need to meet my family. Cause I said, sometimes I think we sit around, we could be a sitcom by ourselves. Well, humor humor is helpful, especially, you know, I remember working the ER, you know, and that's tough. It's hard, but man, if you could laugh about something, it got Mm -hmm. you through the night and yeah, I think humor is important. It's fun to laugh with your families. It's fun to laugh with your kids, um, you know, and your patients. It, you know, there's joy in that. So that is- you you clearly bring a lot of joy to the world. And I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Okay. So that was just way too much fun. If I was a teenager, I think I would pour my heart out to Dr. Lisa Lowry. She is so candid and honest and caring and I'm telling you what, just fun, right? Well, listen, I just wanted to summarize a couple of things. I did want to note I was having lots of trouble with my microphone. So if my sound is not great, I so apologize, but hope that you stuck with it because what Dr. Lowry had to say was so fabulous. She really talks about having the heart of a servant leader and is compelled to give back to the community in so many different ways. And I think one of the biggest ways that she ever did that was by becoming an adolescent medicine specialist. She talked a lot about providing a no judgment zone. And I think for those of us that see teenagers and and really like seeing teenagers, the biggest thing that we have to convey to them is that they can trust us with sensitive information, even if we have to disclose to their parents. I mean, certainly if they talk about drug use that is putting them in significant danger or suicidal ideation or abuse, that we have to disclose those things. But there are so many things that we can keep in confidence and really build those relationships with teenagers so that they will feel free to talk to us. I I think kids are looking for someone to talk to, and hopefully it's us. We did discuss 
sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I think sex is a kind of a tough topic. She had some really great strategies for asking about, are you having sex at all? And if so, with men, with women, are you binary? And asking that in a way that is just part of our routine questioning. I think there was the idea of safe sex. And in our youngest population, it's understanding what's you know, a good touch, bad touch, and hopefully they learn that, you know, from very young age. But as teenagers, understanding about relationships that put them in danger emotionally because of manipulation and when they don't feel good about it, but they don't really know, is this okay or not okay? And she had some really good advice about how to wander through that conversation with these kids and really to tease out from them why are they in these relationships you know again it's kind of like substance use what it is about the substance use that gives you comfort I mean what what is it you get from that and I think that's the same probably from relationships that are harmful that there is something that they get from those relationships as far as advice she said you know I would really just offer guidance and this idea again of the no judgment zone She is such a big-hearted individual, and I'm so grateful that she is in a community not far from my own here in southwest Michigan. So she also left me with an article called Getting Into Adolescent Heads. It's from 2004, but really talks about how to talk to, to kids. So I'll make sure that I include that in the show note. So again, I just want to thank you. I apologize for the quality of the recording. Promise that I'm getting a new microphone. And I wish you all the very best. Please stay safe out there. I hope you're in line for a vaccine. And I will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.